Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number nine. This week, we talk with Greg Levenhagen about his experience on mobile development, comparing Swift and C-sharp, share the icon no one agrees on, and Apple uses Windows on Mac Pro production lines. Hello, I'm Jason Young, and with me is my co-host, Carl the Beard Schweitzer. How's it going, Carl? That's not the first time this week I've been introed as that. That's pretty funny. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, well, well, this week I uh, co-taught some uh, interns on mobile development, and yeah. uh, that was brought up uh, during my introductions as well. So They called you the Beard? Yes, just oh, like that. I didn't even know. I've never heard you call that. I just made that up. Well, uh, more and more people are starting to notice that uh, the icon that I put on all my avatars now is the one with, you know, me with the, the big stocky glasses and the beard. Right. So that's what people are starting to pick up on. So that, that's your brand. So now you can never cut it. Yeah, which is good because then I, you know, when my wife tells me I need to trim it, I just said, I can't. It's out of my hands. <laughs> it's the image. So this week we have uh, Greg Levenhagen on. How's it going, Greg? That's uh, going very well. Thanks for having me. Yep. So I've uh, I've actually worked with Greg for a while when it, back in the days whenever I worked at uh, Skyline and uh, him and I work on new new Doug together and uh, our paths seem to cross all the time. I know you were you were out at Build. Pretty much everywhere I go, I, I end up seeing you there. There's probably a fifty fifty chance that I see you there. So you want to give a, a little introduction about yourself? Yeah. So first, uh, new Doug, right? Acronym soup. So that's the Northeast Wisconsin developers user group. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jason and I, uh, run that along with another individual as well. I've been going on for about eight years. Uh, I'm also one of the board members for that conference, uh, which is at thatconference.com. That's a professional level, uh, national style conference. Um, I'm a Microsoft MVP in client development, which is one of the newer MVP categories. So that mm -hmm. kind of means the larger scale of Windows 8 apps, Windows Phone, um, hopefully soon Xbox apps, um, you know, and, and of course, WPF, like the desktop side. Okay, that's pretty cool. And uh, so I work for Skyline Technologies as a consultant covering Midwest area and been doing a lot with uh, client development, uh, Azure, um, Android, iOS development. So, so a little bit of everything. Yeah. 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 Perfect. So, uh, let's jump into the news. Uh, some interesting stories, uh, this week. So the first one, uh, this one made its way around Twitter, uh, quite a bit. So this one is about, uh, comparing Swift and C sharp. So we talked about this a little bit on our last show. We talked about the new language that Apple came up with, uh, which is this Swift language. And somebody actually went through, um, it looks like his name is Chris, 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 um, uh, Pichman, it looks like, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correct, but he actually went through and, and he showed, you know, declaring constants, variables, uh, integer bounds, type inference, you know, string comparison, a whole bunch of the, the language basics. He did, he just compared Swift and C sharp side by side. And this was really helpful for people like me that, you know, know C sharp and, um, I don't know. I don't know what stuck out uh, to you guys, how much you've looked through this. Yeah. So I, I had gone through it, found it on Twitter mm -hmm. and I found that, you know, one of the big uh, initial attractions is okay. Garbage collection, mm -hmm. you know, so more modern language uh, for the average developer. Uh, we also have uh, type inference within Swift now. Mm -hmm. um, so instead of using var like C sharp, um, you know, we can use C-sharp style var in Swift, but we can also use let uh, if you're doing like constants. Okay. And so that's a little bit like on the F-sharp side of things, the word, the keyword let. Um, 
what I what I found striking though most is similarity in the style, which isn't really, I guess, too surprising once given a little bit of thought with the C mm -hmm. style syntax, because you'll find that between C sharp and Java and, and other C based languages. Um, but taking it even further, um, you know, I, I, I heard on somewhere in conversation that was it Oracle won the a lawsuit about uh, APIs with okay. Android. Okay, I did not hear that one. I knew that there was the lawsuit. So, so they won. So, what what was their? I can't remember what their position was. Did they say you could copyright an API? Was that what it was? Yeah, and and so let's let's be clear on that. They won the current state, I guess. Right. right? I'm sure there there's more appeals or up up to the Supreme Court, but yeah. So the Java API, as it currently stands, is uh, owned under Oracle, which means that Android can't expose like a new implementation using the Java interface, which I find frankly pretty crazy. Right. Because if I start the example that that came to me was, well, what about like Max and it takes int x comma int y? Like how many times has that been implemented? And you know that's part of Java, so that does now. Does Oracle now own that, and I can never make that footprint, uh, you know, method signature? Wow. Um, and, and so, you know, going back to Swift on this this level, um, you know, like some of the names are instead of like starts with, it's has prefix in Swift. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the the two upper, two lower is uppercase string and lowercase string. So there, there's subtleties like that. Um, in, do, in do you think it, they in, were, do you think they were intentionally trying to keep the names different so that they wouldn't look like C sharp? I, I think there's probably part of that. And in all honesty, maybe the court case ruling with, um, well, Apple would want to be their own, right. Mm -hmm. But they might want to avoid the lawsuits as well. Um, I, I just think that overall that it's it's kind of foolish to to have those be copyrightable or or patentable i'm not sure which it fell under i'm, I'm assuming copyright yeah my understanding is it was copyright and that uh, it's just un unfathomable what the implications of that are for software in general right right so what what i found interesting though about this swift language i mean just looking through it and comparing to c sharp i mean my reaction was well, my first reaction was that they should have just used C sharp, but of course we know Apple would never do that. Um, even though that was probably the right thing to do, but, um, you know, ignoring that for a moment, I was just thinking, and maybe this is what they were trying to do was, Hey, I can actually write this. Like I looked at objective C and it was pretty appalling. So I, I, uh, you know, I never really wanted to touch it. I've always looked at, you know, Xamarin and I've used Xamarin before, but this actually makes it so that you know, when I look at Xamarin versus this and Xamarin has a price tag, I, I think Xamarin's worth it, but I might look at the two and I might say, you know, for this particular application, I, I might just use what they give me. Yeah. And so I think the positioning that they've put themselves in, like you just highlighted it is spot on because especially when we consider Xamarin and, uh, the new Roslyn compiler being open sourced, mm -hmm. I would expect that Microsoft and Xamarin will partner so that, you know, sometime in the next year, Xamarin is actually using Roslyn right. and make it even easier to do the cross-platform dev. And so I, I definitely think that this has a play from a marketing strategy of 
hey, we need to kind of get with the times, um, you know, because although I, you know, in the 90s, I was basically all C, C++, and so it wasn't hard for me to pick up Objective-C, um, but I definitely have heard that same sentiment a lot from people coming from the .NET and Java worlds mm -hmm. that hadn't had the the raw C experience because it's not just picking up raw C. It's it is different style with with its kind of message passing uh, and calling in Objective C. Um, you know, if you would have really spent maybe a week head down, like it probably would have started clicking a little bit better. Right, right. But but it, but it is different. That's for sure. For sure. And Swift is definitely more on par with the C-sharp Java developers. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on this, Carl? Well, I agree with most of what you guys said. You know, it, it, it is a very familiar feel to somebody who does have experience with C-sharp. But um, like I said, I was talking with an iOS developer um, yesterday, and you, you still kind of have to know the objective C way of doing things. You have to know its framework either way. Right. So if you're going to be developing on that platform, and you're not used to that platform, there's going to just be some overhead anyways, learning the styles and the ways that they do things over there. So, well, but at the same point, that's all, you know, mostly what you have to learn. There shouldn't be as much from the language standpoint. If you use something like Swift, do they um, allow it, semicolons on these lines here? Is it optional? It's, it's optional from what okay. I read. Cause that would drive me crazy. Yeah, well, I, I remember reading specifically that you don't have to type a semicolon. So, but you can. I'm, I'm assuming it's optional, right? Okay, because it's just like a period at the end of a sentence whenever I type. You know, <laughs> just right. Un Unfortunately, I haven't downloaded and played with this yet because I only have one environment to develop for iOS, and I I can't uh, move to iOS eight yet. So, oh, I gotcha. Uh, any final comments on that? Should we move on? Yep. Sure. Um, so the next one here, I, this one was kind of interesting The this one and, um, it's sort of obvious, but you know, I think it's still worth saying it's, it's the title of this blog post was, uh, people, uh, people hate to register. So the, the idea here is that, you know, there's a lot of websites that we use where we, we just don't like to register. Like that's, it's a, it's a huge, uh, barrier to entry. If you look at, uh, like Google analytics, they have this, uh, portion of Google analytics where you, you get this uh, kind of funnel view. And if you instrument your pages properly, you can, you can look at this funnel where, you know, you could use this funnel for like a checkout process on a website and you can say, Hey, at the top of the funnel, this is all the people that come to my website. Uh, the next part of the funnel, the smaller portion is, you know, all the people that add an item to the cart. And as you go through the different stages of checkout, you can sort of see like where you're losing people. Like if your checkout process has 10 steps, you're going to lose people, right? You're going to lose more than if you have three easy to use steps. And sometimes there's just one step that's just really terrible. So the, the notion here, and this isn't really talking about e-commerce sites, but it's talking about sites that where they really don't actually need to have a registration. And, uh, you know, I, I totally agree with this. So I know before on the show, I've talked about this, this website that I have for doing this real-time logging. It's called uh, logforstuff.com. And on that one, I was pretty adamant about, Hey, I, I don't want people to, you know, have to create an account. You, you don't even have the option to create an account. What you end up doing is you just, you create any kind of ID that you want and you sort of get you, you get your own URL basically. And that's what this article is talking about. So you, you, you go in there, you do your thing, you get your own URL and that's kind of your place on their website. Um, so I just, I thought it was a clever article. And I can really empathize with that too, because there's a lot of times where I, you know, I go to a site through a link or something and just to check out some content and all of a sudden they want me to sign up and 
mm-hmm. I'll just stop right there if if there's not a, a value that I need to get out of it. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit different if I if I'm doing some e-commerce and you know I'm doing some paid transaction or something. I expect there to be a little bit of overhead, and it's a, a comfortable to have register and have some sort of you know sign up. That way, you can go back and check on the status of whatever you're purchasing. But you know, if, if there's you're just providing somebody some information or some content of source that you know you don't need that kind of transaction with. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that this is the best way to handle that, but it's it's really a good concept to at least get you thinking. You know, you know how do I do this so I can actually engage with the people? Because mm-hmm. if people can't access your content, then you're not engaging with them. Yeah, this is definitely the the trend. I mean, we are, we've already seen this happen with logins, right? People don't want to create an account uh, to use your site. Um, you know, your use your own login, but if they can use like Twitter or Facebook or Live or something like that to log in. You know, a lot of people will opt for that. Um, so I, I think we're going to, you know, we could see that continue to evolve where, you know, those some centralized services that we trust end up having more and more information uh, that we want to share. And then we just end up, you know, sort of authorizing that site. Yeah, go ahead. You know, I'm trying to purchase something from them. Go ahead and, and you know, give them the money or give them just the bare minimum what they need to know to charge my card or whatever. So I think there's there's several points that have from this discussion that have come up to me. Mm-hmm. One is I think that the the broad user base probably needs to understand what it means to sign up with Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus, Microsoft, mm-hmm. because generally speaking, you know it. In, in, and speaking as a developer, I know that you in basic only get you know, the email or a unique ID and you don't ever see the password and you don't get like all of the friends and everything else. Well, Facebook is a little bit different, but that's how they set up the developer sets up the app. Right. And I think that that misconception from using like the OAuth type approach on a website is really because of the mobile phones, because a lot of times the apps will take, um, you know, a, well, I'll just ask for all this stuff in case I need it in the future. Yeah, Location services. We want to be able to read your calendar, read your email. And it's like, uh, this is just a fart app. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's given the, the mass consumers, uh, a bad impression and, and rightfully so, because mm-hmm. the majority of those apps do, do not need all that content. Um, the other thing from this side is, you know, having to have implemented scenarios like this, this blog post is talking about, uh, it, it definitely produces more throughput. So like where the partial shopping cart is the example I've had to work with and you're gathering information the entire time because of marketing type stuff, but it's not forcing the user to do it. So they can go partially through and they may be any percentage from zero to 100 with actually completing the step. And mm-hmm. until they actually complete the purchase, like they don't really have a full account. You may have gotten their email, you may have gotten their name or address or something, but they can back out at any time. And by not forcing them to, to do all that right up front, um, those clients that I've worked with have seen greater success like is pointed out here. Mm-hmm. And, and the last point I was gonna say is, specifically when I'm browsing sites on a mobile device, if, the first thing I see, or if I download an app and the first thing I see in order to get any useful stuff out of it is to register an account, I almost always just delete the app or go to another site. Yeah. Yeah. I used to be really gun shy about using, you know, something like my live account to authenticate another application. And that I, I, I stayed like that for a long time. And then I actually went to 
implement some authentication using live ID or live as a, as a provider. And what I realized, they don't even give you the email address. Like you get, you just get like some, I think some, some generic ID and it's really all it tells you is, Hey, I I saw this same person. You know, if they log in a second time, you're like, Oh yeah, you were that person that logged in before, you know, eight, seven, five, three, nine. Right. So it's really not sharing a lot of information. Yeah. And Twitter and Google may give the email. Facebook's a little different. So I've registered Mm -hmm. some Facebook apps to do the uh, authentication like that. And so, but Facebook's good when you, when a developer wires it up like that, Facebook will actually bring you to a web page and tell you what's being requested. Um, but it's, yeah, the Microsoft is the best one in that it doesn't even give the email. Yeah. And I, I see it having, I see it as, as like it's generic purpose in life is to just prove who you are and and nothing else like the Facebook. I don't know. It's just that's sort of tied to a whole bunch of my information. And I really don't like to use it for that. Um, Google is sort of in the middle, but um, so I tend to use my, my live ID when I, when I just want to prove my identity and and nothing else. Um, the only time I use the, the Twitter one is if it's, if it is something that's social and it's something that sort of relates to Twitter, you know, for like comments or something like that, I'll actually use Twitter to log in. Well, and, and so you bring up another interesting point. So uh, I just went through this with redoing the that conference website, where we wanted to uh, enable our we're largely technical attendance, right? For about a thousand developers, so mm-hmm. we wanted to make sure that we had as many available as we could. So I, I actually don't think we included Facebook, but we did Twitter, Microsoft, Google, uh, Stack Overflow, and then we actually do our own OAuth provider as well. But the important thing there, what I'm bringing up is that provide the choice because what you just explained makes sense for you, Mm -hmm. but maybe somebody else uses Google plus for work and Microsoft for personal stuff. And, you know, so they have their own relation. So I think the importance there is for the developers to give the choices for the different accounts that makes sense because there's a lot of sites out there that offer it. It's not just these major four or five we're talking about. Right. And it's so easy now to implement in uh, .NET in the later versions. It's so easy. Yeah, when when I've I've done it several times now with the new Owen stuff, and it's some of them is just uncommenting uncommenting a line, and and the majority of them is pasting in your consumer key and consumer secret, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden you're good. Exactly. So uh, up next, share the icon that no one agrees on. So this actually um, this has some history to it, but the. The, the article itself uh, was talking about all the all of the different um, share icons. So no matter what platform you pick, they all have a different icon for sharing. Uh, Wind, or Windows 8 has this little like circle with dots on it that really makes no sense. Windows Phone 7 had a little gift, which doesn't make any sense. Apple's just got a box with an arrow, um, which sort of makes sense to me. Android, it makes the least amount of sense. It's like three dots with... Hey. <laughs> with lines it, connecting them. It's almost like a network, you know, node. Oh, you know. that's what it, okay. I, I did not get that. Okay. The, the, the one I, I like the most is the one that's on the far right. It's the open share icon. Yeah. But if you look at it, it's an abstract hand with the, you know, somebody yep. passing something to somebody else. So, but when you just glance at it, it just kind of looks like a, you know, a weird stylistic circle. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, th- th- this is, you know, I agree with what this article says, you know, this, this is, you know, a simple thing that we all understand is sharing. You know, I want to give this, whatever it is to somebody else, mm-hmm. but there's just no good pictograph, no, you know, icon or image that we can all agree upon that. Yes, that, and you know, 90% of the people out there can say that's sharing. 
So one of the first things that I did when I saw this article is um, uh, for most of my apps, I generate my icons with uh, a product from Syncfusion called uh, Metro Studio. And I, uh, they have a little search box in there. I typed in share and I get about, you know, 50 or 60 different icons that are all different. They cover all of these that are up there, plus more different kind of concepts. So, you know, even on that level with somebody who's providing icon packages, they realize that there are so many different ways to represent this. Yeah, we we just all need to get along and, and pick standards because I uh, even even with the Windows, like the Windows share icon, I think is it's confusing. Um, if everybody used it, I don't think it would be confusing. I, I don't think everybody needs you to adopt that one, but it'd be great if, if there was some way that we could just all get on the same page here. And I don't, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Right. And it's just going to keep going like this. So let's consider if everybody used it. I like that scenario brought up. Yep. Uh, my niece and nephew have no concept of what a floppy disk is. Right. And yet that's the universal save icon. And they right. know that, but they've never actually even seen a floppy disk and specifically yep. a three and a half inch floppy. Yep. So that was another link that we included here that, that you're sort of referencing here. So Scott Hanselman had a post with a whole bunch of these icons and he started out with that save icon. So go ahead. Sorry, I interrupted. Well, the only other thing is the if I, you know, kind of close my eyes and think, what do I picture um, somebody doing for a share, mm-hmm. uh, you know, go back to a kid, you know, so somebody, you know, little, little school person, little school boy standing there, I would v- imagine them having a ball in their hand mm-hmm. and, 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 uh, palm facing upward. Yeah. And so the closest thing I get to that is actually a hybrid of what Carl liked on the top, right. And then scrolling down for the open hand so that you actually see the fingers, so the open hand by itself doesn't like give me a, Hey, I'm trying to give you something. Yeah. But if, if there was like, say a floating ball right above that hand, then it would make me think, Hey, I'm trying to give you something or share something, but that's, that's a good just point. My, so my, I, I have a question for you and, and I honestly don't know the answer to this. Is that, um, um, you know, is that universal cross cultures too? Yeah, I don't know. Um, what's interesting about that is I don't have the answer obviously, but Mm -hmm. I would think that it's pretty close to being that way because, you know, across language barriers, the, the physical gesture would seem, you know, how else would you do it? Or would you throw it at, would you throw it at at their face? (laughs) I want to live there. But I guess another miniature lesson that, you know, I kind of pulled out of this too, is one of the things that kind of sparked, you know, this entire topic was the fact that Apple created a different way to show this than what they do on their, on their other UIs. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of, you know, reminded me just to be consistent. So if there's something that I'm creating in one of my applications that I kind of remember to do it the same way, when I'm do when I mean to show uh, somebody to do say, uh, a very similar pattern. So not that I'm, I'm doing it one way here and I'm doing it slightly different in a different place, you know, I don't want to confuse my users. Well, they don't want to stay boring. They just want, they want to keep reinventing themselves apparently. Well, part, part of the discussion we should consider is context as well. Um, although I agree with your point in that <clears throat> across the platform, you would think that they would use a similar icon, but, uh, but perhaps it makes more sense depending on the app contextually, you know, to symbolize a share in that sense. Um, and then, you know, the, the post that I was talking about before with Hanselman, this was interesting. This was a older post. It was from, uh, looks like it's going on two years ago now. And it, it was bringing up what you were talking about where the, 
the floppy disk icon, you know, which floppies are dead. Um, it, it was funny. My, my wife's school in the, in sort of their, uh, their student, um, code of contact, they, they hadn't updated it. So it said that you couldn't, um, it said something about misusing diskettes in there, you know, and I said, she's like, what does this mean? I said, don't worry about it. Um, you know, cause she, she just didn't use computers whenever, you know, she never really thought about disks and moving disks around. So yeah, our kids today are, are, are pushing the, the save button, not know, you know, they know that that's the save button, but they don't really know what it stands for. I think I told my, my older son one time and he's like, Oh, that's cool. Um, but he thinks of it as like a giant USB, uh, you know, um, thumb drive. And then uh, radio buttons are another one. You know, I actually, um, you can find a lot of people, um, you know, that are, that are younger than we are. And I'll be like, do you know what radio buttons are based off of? And they'll be like, no. And it's like, well, they were actually on a radio. Like I remember doing this where you'd, um, you know, you'd actually push a button on a radio and, and it would go to that and the other one would pop back out. Um, what else is here? Address books and calendars. Those are pretty, still pretty relevant. Voicemail. The one one that I find interesting. So I'm aware of some of these. Yeah. Uh, The one that jumps out to me is actually the phone handset. Yeah. Because I've been for the last, I don't know, 10 plus years with only a cell phone. And, you know, I see more and more families growing up where the parents will have cell phones and then they'll keep like a track phone or something for the kids at the house. But yeah, it doesn't look like the, the, you know, eight inch long with a earpiece and a mouthpiece anymore. Yeah. And actually it's funny because the the picture here too shows a a cord on the phone. And, uh, I pointed that out to one of my kids, we were watching a movie and they had, you know, like the, like the 20 foot cord, you know, in the kitchen where you could just sort of take it, take it everywhere. And, uh, I said, look at that cord. And they're like, what's that for? It's like, well, that was, you know, it wasn't wireless. It actually had a a wire on it. That's how it was for when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then this one, I got a kick out of this one. There's a magnifying glass, um, and binoculars and they're sort of backwards because find is binoculars. Um, so what does it say here? It says magnifying glass became the search everywhere icon. Um, but for some reason, binoculars are for searching within a document, but it doesn't make any sense because magnifying glasses are for searching things that are near and binoculars imply breadth of search and distance. So they're, <laughs> they're just, they're just backwards. Um, envelopes for mail. Um, there's tools for the settings, which sort of makes sense, I guess. Um, microphone, I guess, isn't too out of date. The television is one that, you know, yeah, that with rabbit ears. Well, yeah, there's, so what is a, what does a new TV look like? It is just a rectangle. Right? Yeah, yeah, it looks like a, a monitor <laughs> rectangle, right? Yeah, because I mean, even the the bezel, like there's some TVs where they're getting rid of bezels. I mean, we don't have the. There's no way to switch there. There's no you know ro- rotary dial for changing the channel. So there's there's nothing distinctive about a current TV. So they have to show an old TV. Well, I remember getting getting my Nintendo and hooking that up to uh, you know a TV that was had the rabbit ears and stuff. And every now and then I'd have to smack the side of it. You guys yep. remember <laughs> even doing that? Like kids nowadays are like, you would smack a TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then there was the uh, you know the coax cable, but then you also had the little adapter to switch off into the two wires or or back and forth. And right. I, I used to have a, a box in the basement that had I must have had ten you know, 10 different adapters. I had uh, some rabbit ears in there. And then I had all the different adapters to go like different directions for antennas. And, uh, I think it was a couple of months ago. I'm like, why am I keeping these? I mean, the, uh, I, I can't even imagine what I would use it for anymore. <laughs> so I just threw it all away or took it to Best Buy cause they recycle that stuff. 
Um, so up next, uh, this one was interesting and this one, uh, Apple got a lot of flack for this one. So, uh, Tim cook on his Twitter feed, he was, um, I don't even know what, uh, what he tweeted, but he was out there working on one of the Apple production lines or he was, you know, checking it out and it was this nice, uh, photo opportunity and they have some, some nice iMacs in the background that are, that are hung up and showing some information. But what's interesting is that they are running windows. So they're running windows in the manufacturing plant. And, um, you know, I think, I think a lot of Apple people were sort of heard about this, at least the, the people that were, you know, angry enough or, or, or got a kick out of it enough to, you know, to reply to the tweet of it. But here, here's the fact. I mean, this is, this is so normal, so unbelievably normal. I, I guarantee in any Apple production facility, there's, um, you know, 50 machines that are, that are running windows, not just on the production lines, but the, the building automation systems, you know, any kind of systems that are, you know, there's probably a lot of copies of embedded windows in different places. And if you go to the Microsoft campus and you look at certain teams, like the, um, uh, the team that does, um, you know, office for Mac, obviously, and, and they make some of the, the mobile apps, they all have a Mac. And I actually have people that I work with where they run windows on a Mac. I mean, we're just, it's, it's a different world. It's not, um, you know, there you, you're not in just one camp or the other. It, it doesn't work like that anymore. So any yeah, other comments? It, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, so I've been running primarily off my work laptop being a MacBook pro, uh, but I probably am in uh, native windows. I'd say 80% of the time mm-hmm. on windows eight and it runs great. And yeah. then when I am developing for iOS or, or need something on, on the OS 10 side, it's booting into that. And I have parallels to actually uh, run the bootcamp partition. So I, I get the best of both worlds out of it. It's a little bit of necessity for me for, um, for developing on the iOS side. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I'm not surprised when, when I see images like this, it, it, it's, over the last, I'd say maybe six years, it's those walls have really started to break down. Right. And, yeah. um, and, and frankly speaking, like when it comes to the specifics of making mobile apps, um, you know, we, we have to be multi-platform. Nobody these days wants to write just for one platform. Right. And Apple has a huge advantage there, right? Cause they can, like you said, with your Mac, you can run both, um, OS 10 and you can run windows and unfortunately, that's the only way to do it. Like you can't legitimately run, you know, buy a Windows laptop and run OS 10 on it. So I wouldn't uh, call that an advantage for Apple. I would call them that Apple being strong arming the developers. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a forced it's a forced advantage. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So and 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 one thing that they definitely do right is is the trackpad. I mean, you cannot beat that trackpad. Yeah, the trackpad trackpad is nice. What what ultimately what I would love to see is, um, you know, either the the solution for compiling uh, iOS to to be okayed for like in the cloud or something like that, where right. it's it's not as as harsh, or you know, throw a long toss out there and say, hey, let's have Visual Studio using C sharp or maybe even Swift. Mm-hmm. on the Mac side so that I can write it in there and Microsoft uh, benefit from having, you know, my MSDN as a service kind of thing or something like that. Right. Yeah. But, you know, so Apple running, you know, windows on here, it's pretty obvious why, right? They're the, the industry software 
for for doing this type of work does not exist for OS 10. It just does not exist. I there, there's nothing out there to run your manufacturing plants, at least not that I've ever seen. And I, you know, I have a pretty good background in manufacturing and all the software that's out there and just nobody writes it for, for OS 10. So, I mean, Apple, th- this is just how it's done. And, uh, I mean, they're using their own hardware, at least it would be pretty bad if they were running, you know, a Dell with windows <laughs> hung up there, but e- even that would sort of be understandable if they, um, you know, they, they didn't necessarily customize this production line, right. This could have been, um, something they contracted out and they said, well, here's what it needs to do. And, and, uh, you know, they said, well, it has to have, you know, Apple computers, you know, maybe they put that, they specify that in there, but, uh, the contractors had to, you know, they had to make it so that this fulfilled their requirements. The other thing we could always throw out there is that, uh, you know, maybe it's the keep your enemies closer type thing. And if yeah. they don't, if they don't use it, they don't know what's working and what doesn't work in their competitors. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, um, I don't want to. I don't want to sort of group everybody at Microsoft in the same group. I, I, there's, there's definitely a variety of people, but there are, there definitely are people that, you know, have never touched a Mac. And, you know, I think it's important that, that people try everything, you know, try everything, see what works for you. Um, see what, you know, sort of understand the pros and cons. Um, cause I've in my life, you know, I started out on an Apple and uh, it was a Mac plus and that was back in, you know, the eight, well, actually that's not what I started. I started on a TRS 80, but the, the first Apple I started was a, was a Mac plus. And, um, you know, like I, I get their philosophy. I've, I've, I've always, I've used Apple products for a long time and it, it just helps you understand, you know, different ways of doing things and what's the same, what's different pros and cons. So I think everybody should, should take a look at both platforms. So, uh, moving on. So Greg, the reason we had you on, we have a couple of reasons, but we have, uh, so we have a whole bunch of questions for you. Um, so like you mentioned earlier, you know, you work at Skyline technology, so you get a lot of, uh, experience working with clients on, on, on different applications. So you have a lot of experience there. So we wanted to, uh, to ask some uh, questions around that. So, uh, why don't you kick it off, Carl? Yeah. Um, so one of the topics you said you were interested in was talking about enterprise uh, Windows 8 apps and Windows Phone apps. But before we even get going in that direction, what what are we calling the Windows Store apps? Is it it's not Metro? I've heard Windows Store. There's quite a few different names. Um, with your experience, what is the the nomenclature that we should phrase this as? Great question. So. Um, <laughs> I actually have not specifically asked that uh, on some of the internal threads in Microsoft, but that's because I was given a formal answer through, um, I don't know what they're called now, but it was Microsoft Learning at the time, I think during the reorg last summer that changed. But um, so when they got rid of the Metro name, I was given four names, um, depending on- Just to keep it clear. On context. (laughs) And so those names, like if you're talking about the design, it was the Windows Modern UI. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it was apps, it was Windows Store apps mm-hmm. instead of instead of just Metro. And you know where people would say Metro app, it was Windows Store app. Those two kind of kind of cover the vast majority of it. Um, what, what's interesting now with I think uh, maybe it was six months ago, or not even six months ago, maybe four, Microsoft announced that they're in the process of merging the stores. Um, 
So now, like we see that developers really only have to register in one place and that's active on the back end. There's still more work to be done there. Uh, so it'll be interesting when, you know, they've said, okay, we call the windows eight Metro apps. We really call them windows store apps. Well, how does that differentiate between phone and non-phone devices? Right? So that's probably another name change that we'll have coming up. Uh, you know, we'll see out of Microsoft within the next year or so. Yeah. Whenever I'm, uh, the, the time that this actually matters is when I'm searching for information. So what I'll do is, you know, I, I want to know how to do something specific and I'll sort of tack on, I either use uh, XAML as a search term or I'll put in, you know, windows store, um, you know, or even windows store app so that it, you know, sort of knows how to, how to qualify right. that. So I, I've done a lot of work on both the XAML and the JavaScript sides for these, um, off of WinRT based apps. And so WinRT, uh, that that gets interesting because of the whole Windows RT, uh, Surface RTs, and so there's confusion among that, I find, even among developers. Mm -hmm. But if you're doing the JavaScript side, throwing in WinJS usually uh, helps narrow down those searches quite a bit. Okay. The nice thing is going forward, I mean, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, not knowing what it's going to be called with the whole universal app, but I guess for the most part, it's just not really going to matter. Right. Cause they're, you just, you don't think of them as two platforms anymore. Uh, for the most part. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, if you, you know, I know we're audio only here, but if you kind of envision a Venn diagram that has two circles, mm -hmm. um, with say 98% of them overlapping, I mean, that's what we're going to end up with. If, I mean, we're, we're very close to it already, mm -hmm. uh, where WinRT you know, is the main piece there, whether it's the XAML side or the JavaScript side. And then you get phone specific stuff. And my understanding is that it'll never be a hundred percent overlap because there are just features on a phone that are not on a tablet or a laptop, like the call features. Now, maybe 10 years from now that changes and our laptops have the ability to make actual cell phone type calls. But until that kind of feature set arrives, um, you know, we'll, we'll see something a little bit different. Yeah. I wonder if that'll turn into like, you know, sort of like the, how the JavaScript checks work. Right. So you say like if device, you know, can make call or, you know, is call capable or something like that. Correct. And, and so looking, you know, since windows eight, the 8.0 API exposed, um, you know, functionality for us, like location, microphone, and, uh, the camera, which were three capabilities outside of the all the others that you always have to check for because at any given time a user can go and take the permission away. Mm -hmm. So you're always checking for those as a you know kind of a best practice or successful pattern. And and so you bring up a great point. I mean that's definitely one argument to simplify the API differences. Now for full disclosure and transparency on that, we should also then consider. Uh, Windows 8 industry and Windows Phone 8 mm -hmm. embedded. So those two things add uh, a little bit more of a slice where the Windows Phone embedded gives you two more namespaces specifically with locking down the phone uh, and uh, mobile device management namespaces. And then the Windows 8 or the window, yeah, Windows 8 industry adds, I think like eight different uh namespaces a little bit more on that. Did you, do you want to give some background and explain those two different concepts to us? The, the industry and the embedded. Right. So, um, it gets interesting with those, 
the marketing hasn't quite been there for, from what I've seen. I, I find a lot of people haven't uh, gotten up to speed in, entirely on those, but there's there's definitely a market for, uh, like say in retail, for the employees that are working inside of a retail shop or truck drivers that are moving around and the companies want to provide devices for them that can be locked down. So they're not used like a traditional mobile phone would be, but they're on a secure network. Um, they can push updates automatically and control who has access like for login. So it's really giving you a mobile presence that the company is fully in control of. And it's, it's not the sense of where all of a sudden you need to carry another phone, like where you have your personal and your other one, like if you're on call in, in the IT world, this is more of like a location aware, uh, you know, like you're in the store uh, and doing specific workflows. And it's all about allowing those enterprises to really uh, come to grips and, and get that done. And of course, there's the whole BYOD for the bring your own device type movement. But as we find that even with some VPN solutions on these and some of the platforms allow for what you call different profiles, um, they just don't solve the problem. And so the embedded and the industry versions of Windows Phone and Windows 8 really do get us there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so what, in your experience working with these these customers, what what kind of interest have you seen uh, in the enterprise for, for making, you know, these new, uh, uh, store apps, I guess is what we're calling them. So I have, I have seen interest. We've mm-hmm. had a couple clients. Um, what the, the typical path is more or less that clients want to understand kind of the platform as a whole, you know, because over the last two years, they, they just want to see, is this going to stay? Is it too new? You know, enterprises tend to be a little bit slower to adopt. And so our, Typical entry point is actually usually making um, something that isn't business critical. Uh, maybe it's a public thing, you know. So in the case of retail or um, you know, where they have interaction with customers and consumers, that we make them like location-based apps or something like that. And, and it's an entry point, right? It's like one foot in the door, and then mm-hmm. they see how that's successful, and then we can move on from there. So we've done. Um, you know, I've worked on apps where we have an, uh, a dashboard type setup for a manufacturing warehouse mm-hmm. where they can see they have a whole bunch of electronical devices. So we actually used Windows 8 as the dashboard and SignalR, and it was talking to all these devices. And so, you know, you'd see visual indicators from a little bit far away, and they uh, would flash red then if, if something was wrong with that individual device and they'd have hundreds of these things where they could easily go through. That's one example, you know, so they're, that's non-deployed to the store. Mm-hmm. They have full access, um, but that's not used by a whole bunch of people, um, you know, in their hand. Like, you know, it's not like 200 installs. It's really the dashboard. On the other side, you know, getting in, uh, an enterprise type app in front of a whole bunch of people uh, we have uh, an inventory system we built for a client, you know, I, so I designed it out and had it all configured. They they bought a bunch of surfaces and they've put on 80 different uh, tow motors or forklifts, whatever your area calls them. Mm-hmm. So as people are moving around uh, inventory within their warehouse, they're using the touch-based system. 
before that, they had nothing actually. Oh wow! They, they were they were doing stuff by paper, and a lot of it was getting lost. And so now, by actually being able to track current orders, they're able to you know hyper optimize what's actually going on within their warehouse because of this enterprise based app. the The next strategy is actually taking in the data that they're getting from this and putting it into some kind of BI solution, a business intelligence solution, so that they can actually even, you know, forecast and, and predict even better. So just by by having the, the touch-based, um, you know, interface and, and right there on a tablet being able to be mounted. Uh, and it was, you know, some of the guys at that client had already known XAML. So we went in, did a, about a week's worth of training, and I worked with them and it's it's a great deliverable. They're really happy with it. Yeah, I see that as as a pretty big, um, you know, revolution in manufacturing is is getting screens in front of people, um, not just trying to replace paper, but trying to do optimizations. You know, so giving giving me the information that I want, um, you know, when I want it, and also being able to pull that information. You know, instead of saying you know drive here, I can be like, hey, uh, you know, how many how many more orders we have stacked up, you know, you know, what happens if this, you know, this happens. So, well, and that's one of the things that I get, I get really excited about with the, the actual change in, in the Metro style of interface, mm -hmm. because the, the whole content over Chrome is really a big movement and myself and, and a couple of my coworkers and, and even people in the larger community, like say Billy Hollis have been, you know, being a, being a proponent of saying, hey, you don't need 10,000 records in this grid. Like, it's not making you more productive. Mm -hmm. And so the whole content over Chrome of like notifying, uh, providing them what they're actually trying to work on and notifying them of situations that they need to handle, right? It, it goes more towards the, it let's manage the exceptions rule rather right. than see all 100%. I want to see the 5% that actually need my attention. And it makes the UI much more intuitive and it allows them to get better work and, and quicker work done, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we're seeing that a lot, um, you know, with, with the Windows 8 style of apps kind of come to play. Okay. So now that, now that uh, you know, we have this concept of universal apps where you can write, uh, you know, share a ton of logic and code between, your, you know, sort of desktop tablet app and your phone app has that, have you seen, you know, that really have an impact, um, you know, in the interest from the enterprise? Not yet. No. Okay. Un unfortunately. Um, and I think that that's really only been two months out, uh, to public. Mm -hmm. And I think the sales cycles for enterprises tend to be, you know, a little bit slower than that. Mm -hmm. Um, what is, so I, in that time frame, I've had two clients start up new Windows 8 projects, and you know by by doing some simple education on the universal apps, um, you know they're they're taking that route, and now the, they'll get that out of the box. But that wasn't a driving factor for them to to make the app in the first place. Mm -hmm. Not that I've seen it yet. So that's at this point, it's just a, a nice to have. You know, since we're already making this app for you, if we structure it this way we could easily give you the other one as well. Correct. And I think over time, I think that one, that's going to drastically help the Windows Phone platform. Um, so my personal sight on, uh, insight on this is really when you walk into the stores, the, the retail stores that are selling laptops and tablets, 
you know, 80% of them are running Windows 8 and whatever else it's going to be, you know, Windows 9 or whatever. And so it's only a matter of time between the Xbox Ones showing the modern UI and the desktops. And once people start to realize, hey, this actually for a BYOD device allows me to uh, more seamlessly integrate with things that I want to on my phone, um, I, I see that as, as kind of a, a really big push. Now, um, the companies that are starting to go these routes with taking these, you know, chances on the newer style of Windows Store apps, it is the fact that they're using them um, make them more open to using uh, other products from Microsoft, like going to Azure and using some of that as their backend infrastructure for these? Or does are they kind of independent yet at this point? Great question. Um, so... Full disclosure, my, my company's Azure practice was, I think, if I get the title right, Central Region Partner of the Year for Azure um, for last year. And so we definitely try and, you know, make our clients aware of that. In, in the case of the, the forklift tow motor enterprise app, the you know, we gave them a little dog and pony show about Azure and that whole IT department is moving to Azure, 100% of it. So all the way from Office 365 SharePoint, um, I've moved moved over a couple of their Linux uh, sites that were at a competitor. Um, you know, actually, I'm going to bash them a little bit because it was Rackspace and Rackspace doesn't allow you to export the VMs at all in a non-proprietary format. So that caused a little trouble. But um, once I was able to export that, you know, those are now sitting in Linux VMs. We moved over uh, their marketing, had a couple WordPress sites. Those are now hosted in Azure websites. Um, so, yeah, once they once they saw kind of the play of what we could do with, with Windows 8 and synchronizing some of that data in Azure, um, you know, from that enterprise app, it, it really opened the door for a much, much wider scenario. Cool. So what... Um Whenever, whenever you're, you know, working with these businesses, developing these apps, what kind of, uh, you know, what are the biggest uh, roadblocks and pain points that, you know, are, are keeping or slowing them down or maybe even keeping them from, from adopting, um, you know, this technology? Well, so on, on two different fronts there, right? The, the client side and then there's the Azure side. Um, I guess since we were just talking about Azure, I'll take that first. Sure. Um, yeah, the, it'd, it'd be great the, to hear about both for sure. The, the biggest the biggest educational piece on the Azure side is that the the jobs are not disappearing for whatever reason. I think it's just largely communication and perception that the system administrator types still, <clears throat> excuse me, still feel that their job is threatened. And when we talk to them about, no, it's really just you're using a different set of tools. And if anything, it actually adds a little bit of work. Um, but, you know, it, when we look at it from they're already using a co-location or somebody else that they just don't consider the cloud, but it is externally hosted, um, you know, we go through assessment and say, well, how much are you spending per month on this kind of stuff? And every single time that I've had that on the Azure side over the last several years, actually since 2009, um, I've never had a client that has said, oh, here's what we're spending on our infrastructure pieces. It, we always say, okay, we'll do a month to three months worth of stuff and we'll come back and figure it out. And on average, 
Azure's about a third of the cost. And that gets the management eyes open. And then we have that discussion again with the system administrators and kind of walk them through stuff. And they're like, oh, I can do this and I can do that. And it's, you know, it's becoming much less of a barrier, but it still takes educational pieces there. Um, and from the developer side on Azure, uh, we rarely, if ever, see um, <laughs> static or, or, or you know, a pushback. Most of the time, the devs are like, oh, you mean I can actually have a staging server for the website by just spinning it up in, a, in an Azure account and not have to wait six weeks and worry about permissions and everything yeah. else? Yeah, it's empowering. It's so it's very empowering, you know, so the production site, you know, will will still be under the full control, but they're test QA and, and they can easily set up the continuous builds and push out the the, the app. Um, it also allows for them to test scalability a little bit easier. Um, so the, there's the, the developers are usually right on board and that's only fueled by visual studio getting better and better integration with azure you know the the latest piece of being able to debug uh from within visual studio out into azure is just tremendously that a lot of eyes are just like whoa really like awesome and i think um so i i think it's you know out of the three hats the the devs don't really have much the system administrators um once they get into it like it and then it, it usually takes uh, talking about the money aspects to get, to get the win over the managers. Um, so before I move on to the windows eight side, any follow-up questions on the Azure side or no, that was very insightful. The, um, so on the windows eight side, it's interesting. Um, a, a lot of people in, you know, most of our clients, I think we only have one that's an international level client at this point. Most of our clients are national based. And so fighting market share is one of the biggest things in that, you know, it's, I don't know, I don't remember what the newest ones are. Maybe you guys do, but it's something like 40% and 48% for iOS and Android. So when we're talking about the mobile stuff, that's always a, well, shouldn't we just do one or two of those and see how it kind of goes? Um, and that, of course, you know, it, it that brings up the conversations about Xamarin, PhoneGap, um, if just doing an, a mobile-based website, you know, so responsive design, um, you know, that, that handles mobile first. So we have to go through those kind of conversations. Um, largely what we end up seeing at this point in time, since Windows 8 is still kind of in the, the larger uptake, like I was talking about with... Uh, you know, the new, the newer machines in people's houses and employment, you know, still on the uptake of Windows 8. It's, we see it when the clients have more, uh, more control over it. So like if, say they've, uh, one of my clients has, you know, hundreds of salespeople out and about, and they don't actually offer the salespeople uh, mobile phones specifically to use, but <clears throat> the vast majority of them, all will have iOS. Well, then they only want to create the iOS device. And so <clears throat> when we have the conversations with them and we're like, okay, but managing it, you need to do this and have a, a MDM, a mobile device management system set up and then worry about pushes and updates and security because it's your content. And so those all become conversations that clients tend to start backing away from until we talk about some of the stuff I mentioned earlier with like the embedded devices and uh, having 
uh, you know, domain credentials and that it works with Office and Outlook in, a, in the proper security fashions on the Windows platform, which starts to take up the conversation quite a bit better on the on the Microsoft side. Mm-hmm. So um, are there, or do you have any more? Oh, go ahead. I was going to ask if there's any specific industries or maybe qualities that a business might have that would make them more open to uh, developing these types of apps. Well, the biggest industry that we don't see moving yet is medical, uh, or that I that I don't see moving yet. Um, now, you know, we do our best to to discuss, uh, like on the specifically like on the Azure side, that you know it is HIPAA and PCI compliant and everything. But that's just the data center piece, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the developers, of course, still have to write secure software, um, which is a whole other movement. Um, you know, it, it seems like over the last year, year and a half, that a lot of our industry is becoming more and more security conscientious, which is, a, I think, a really good thing. Um, but from, you know, going from the medical side, being a little bit more reductive, uh, you know, um, struggling for the word there, um, you know, hesitant to to jump, make the jump to the mobile apps and the cloud. On the manufacturing side, we see a lot more of that that they are willing because they tend to be in kind of a closed circuit, you know, full control of the environment. Um, I'm not sure, Jason, you, you find that when with your manufacturing clients, uh, it, it varies. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's, you know, any one, I don't think we can group them all together, but, um, you know, that's, that's one thing I'm working on is, is, is with, with my partners, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, sort of draw a vision and, and, stories like yours with the, the forklift truck and, um, you know, sort of the value that it provides there and drawing a picture of what manufacturing can look at in a couple of years. Um, right. you know, that, that really helps people start to see the vision and the more people start doing it, it just starts to snowball because, you know, all of their excuses for not doing it go away because it's like, well, Hey, this other, you know, company B is doing this, you know, your competitor is doing this and they're very successful, uh, because they're doing this. And then they're like, Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in it. Um, right, what, yeah, go ahead. yeah. Well, one of the biggest things that, you know, so just having the tablets for, you know, specifically like on a Windows 8 style, um, one, one of the plays, like in a manufacturing sense, what we really like to try and push is the integration. Um, so whether that's Bluetooth or USB for like, say, barcode scanners, or, you know, if we start getting into Internet of Things, mm-hmm. where some of those things can talk and you get that dashboard and that interaction while you're out on the floor, uh, those become really big. And once we um, have the connect, um, so we've we've done some work for retail. We've been trying to break into a medical side of connect. It's a little bit more of a fringe on that area. But when we start realizing the, um, you know, the accuracy and, and what the connect can actually provide and have that into say a windows eight app where it's, you know, quick and easy and, and touch based, um, the amount of details that that can collect for say safety, uh, on a shop floor, um, there's a lot of potential within that, that stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, it, it, my impression is that yes, we're, we're over the last two years, we've seen a lot of the, uh, uptake in, in the modern style apps, and that that road is set to explode. Yeah, definitely. So uh, we're starting to run out of time here, but I did want to talk to you about uh, that conference. I know you mentioned it earlier in the show. Um, so, but we wanted to dive in a little bit. We just have a couple of questions for you here. So uh, one thing that I wanted to know is if you have um, 
you know, if there's anything new this year that, uh, uh, hasn't happened in the previous years that people should be really excited for. Huh? Great question. <laughs> um, we have a couple things lined up. I don't know if I can commit to some of them publicly. <laughs> um, the, for, for one, <clears throat> we've added a few more speakers this year. <clears throat> so I think last year we had a hundred and I want to say this year's uh, 115 or 120. So a lot more great content. Um, so first and foremost, we are that professional developer conference, um, off, um, kind of on the side of the convention center. We have some spare rooms where we actually have, uh, family tracks last year. We had six sessions for, for children. And this year we've doubled that to have 12 sessions. Mm -hmm. Um, so we are, we are a family friendly thing. So, you know, the, the idea is that, you know, the geek, we can go geek out with, with, uh, our peers and then spouses can. Um, you know, take the kids to the family tracks if, if they've had enough for the water park or, um, you know, that kind of stuff that the Wisconsin Dells has to offer. Yeah. My kids love that last year. They, the animals and the Legos, they, they just ate it up. Yeah. 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 This, um, yeah. Between like the Lego robotics and the Vex robotics stuff. And then, um, you know, I think we had a session on scratch and so, you know, the, I think, you know, we're trying to get involved more with, um, some people that do that on a regular basis with teaching kids about, uh, software development and, and bringing them in, but we still have great things. Um, you know, like the, the pig roast for our social activity and a happy hour, we rent out the water park. Uh, we have a game night, we have, uh, additional activities like a code retreat. Um, we have a, um, what we call a give camp where it's, you know, doing charitable type software development the the weekend before Uh, this year we'll be um, associating again with the humanitarian toolbox. Uh, You can check our website at that conference to get all new kinds of information on that. Tickets are on sale right now. It's only $3.99. So, excuse me, we, uh, we, we are a non- profit and put all the money back into it and keep the cost as low as we can for the attendees, but, but give them a, you know, a national level, uh, type conference that's comparable to the ones that cost over 2000. Yeah. I know I had a really good time there last year. Um, knowing what, you know, all the talks and all the presenters as well as you do that are scheduled this year, what, what talks and presenters are you most excited to see in here? (laughs) That, that's a great thing. It, so it takes it takes a good twelve plus hours um, after we've done several weeks of prep work to actually go through just the talks. It's uh, I think it was like seven over seven hundred submissions this year. Um, now it, it gets really interesting. Uh, I, I'm interested in some of the Internet of Things editions. Uh, you know, that's kind of the new budding area for us. Uh, I'm mean, us as general software developers. Um, you know, some of the mobile stuff, um, there's some, some talks that I haven't got into those topics yet. But unfortunately, over the last several years running that conference, I think I totaled a, a session of one for attendance. <laughs> um, so I, I, I don't get to actually attend most of those because, you know, while attendees are in session, I'm running around and making sure that sponsors are getting what they need and uh, logistics is, is all happening and, you know, events are, are going on. So, um, you know, but uh, I, I definitely look to my friends and coworkers to, to fill me in on what great content they got to see. Well, even though you might not be able to see them all, um, you mentioned that you at least 
like powered through all 700, you know, entries that there were. were, were there any interesting trends that you noticed, you know, maybe things that are, people are more interested in or less interested in? Yeah. From, from generally looking at the submission counts of, of topics, I think is might be what you're getting at. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We, we saw a big uptake in, in angular submissions, Xamarin submissions, like, you know, kind of seeing where, where industry comes. I was actually asked this question, uh, kind of in a private conversation of what's new um, because over the last couple of years, you know, we, we'd get a lot of submissions on something that wasn't really industry wide, like a lot of buzz about it yet. And this year was a little odd in that we didn't quite have one of those things where all of a sudden there was like 10 submissions about something that myself and the other uh, board members hadn't really heard about yet, um, which is uh, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, the whole causation correlation type thing, but, um, so I don't know if that means that there's not necessarily any kind of breaking thing. I, I tend to be very reluctant on thinking that it's more or less that, uh, either the people that have submitted, haven't heard of it or, or not ready to talk about something like that yet. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, um, let's go to the Azure pick of the week, and I'm going to keep this one real short because of timing. Um, one thing that was interesting this week was um, Docker, which is the open source. There's a it's an open source engine that um, is interesting. It's very popular in the Linux world right now. It's it's sort of uh, appeared out of nowhere, and it it has this concept of using these containers for building applications to to run on servers and in the cloud. So you you sort of pack your application up in this container. And, and run it anywhere. Um, and Azure this week uh, announced support for, um, for Docker in Azure. And I think, um, I think there was some, you know, there's a lot of speculation about increasing support for Azure. I think we're going to see that over time. Um, but I wanted to uh, bring that up. So I don't know if anybody has any comments on that. Have you played with Docker at all, Greg? I have not. Okay. It, it looks very interesting. I just, um, it sort of, uh, it sort of came out of nowhere for me. I, I never saw it. And then a couple of weeks ago, I saw it and it just, I started seeing the name everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's on that list of, you know, a million things to check out that, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to stay up on. Yeah. So I think this also shows, you know, pretty much anything that's going to be really popular in the developer community, we're just, we're going to see Azure supporting that in, in whatever capacity it's, it's capable of doing. I mean, it's really a platform for running any type of application, you know, any, any type of language, you know, however it's, however it's built. Um, you know, we'll take it. <laughs> so that was the uh, Azure pick of the week. Carl, you got the app of the week. Yep. Uh, I decided to go with a, a non-technical one. Um, so as when I was growing up, I watched TV every night. I, I knew every night what I was, you know, what the schedule was. And, uh, now, uh, we've made the switch back to over the air. Uh, I don't have a DVR. Um, so we're pretty much back on the live TV watching schedule again. So, um, this week's app of the week is uh, one that's for a, a Windows Store style app called TV Closet. And what this does, it's a it's a TV uh, tracking application. So you open it up, it'll just tell you out of the box, you know, what shows are on today and, and on tomorrow. And it'll tell you for all the networks, uh, cable, over the air, so on and so forth. But if you create an account, you create an account with a, a, a different website. It uses as a service called Tracked, T-R-A-K-T dot com. Um, you can create an account and just say, Hey, I'm interested in like grim and it'll save it to your favorites. And then it'll just show you when it's on. Um, because now that I'm only watching one or two episodes, you know, mm-hmm. or shows a week, 
it, it's harder for me to remember. Oh yeah, it's on it's on Friday at this time, or maybe it moved. So I just thought this was a really well done app. Um, it's styled really well. Yeah, it, it looks it, great. Yeah, it's really slick working. It it works pretty nice. Um, I signed up for it and started using it. Yeah, I'm gonna check this out. Excellent, uh, Greg. Do you have anything that uh, you want to plug this week? Uh, plug no uh, other than go and check out that conference.com. But uh, I realized there was one thing I wanted to mention about the enterprise Microsoft stack sure. uh, for mobile is that at build, they announced that uh, the kind of management solution that Microsoft has, you know, it was a monthly uh, charge per device. And there was a lot of negative feedback on that. And so at Build, Microsoft announced that if you have an enterprise agreement, that's now of no cost to your company for as many devices as you have. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have an enterprise agreement, it's only a $100 one-time fee. And I think that's largely to thwart, uh, you know, security hackers kind of thing. Just get get them registered. Um, and so that's that's a significant change from... You know, enterprises are originally looking at managing a whole bunch of Windows 8 kind of deployment devices. Now that that cost is is now removed, and I just try and spread the word on that. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, so, where can people find you online? Uh, my blog is greglevenhagen.com. I'm assuming there'll be a link, so yep. I don't have to spell that out. <laughs> um, and uh, same thing for my Twitter handle; it's just my name, Greg Levenhagen, and. Um, you know, you know, follow me, send me a tweet and I'll follow you back or whatever. Perfect. Carl, where can we find you? You can find me at WPDevGuy.com and also at Carl Schweitzer. Perfect. So uh, you can find me at YTechie.com. On Twitter, you can go to uh, Twitter.com slash YTechie and you'll find me there. And then uh, if you're going to be in the uh, near Palo Alto next week, I'm going to be speaking on the industry panel at the Internet of Things World Conference. So that should be a good discussion. I'm going to be talking to a lot of people about uh, the Internet of Things. So I think, uh, you know, first priority is figuring out what what do people think that is? And then, uh, you know, like, what are people doing there? And, you know, what's going on there? So uh, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit uh, on our next episode. 